Today we're going to try to pick up where we left off last week in the book of 1 Peter. We've started this study now, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, and we're just trying to take time. Last week we started this, and today we're trying to take time to finish it, to think about the recipients of this letter. Now before we get going, kids, I want to say to you that I'm glad you're here today, and today's a pastor's prize box day, so make sure that you take notes. If you're a kid, let's say 12 or under, something like that, uh, you take good notes, and at the end of our service today, you come up here, kind of make a line, we'll allow the girls to go first, and then you make a line, and uh, Miss Grace and some of her friends will help you uh, a, get a prize from the prize box for taking notes. If you're a kid and you're in, in uh, Helder Hall at the growing room, we'll wait a few extra minutes to let you to get up here, allow you to get up here so that you can participate as well. Okay, that's for kids and Bob Fry. All right. He just draws pictures, but that's okay. All right. Well, anyway, it is important for us as we think about the... um, And he wasn't even here to hear that. Ah. Somebody tell him when he comes in. Well, it is important for us to think about the recipients of the letter. We, We talked about the writer. We talked about Peter. But we also have to think about the recipients of this letter because discovering something about the readers will actually help us to discern the message that Peter has in this letter. We have to remember that what the letter meant when Peter wrote it is what the letter means today. And when we understand that message, we'll be able to understand how we can apply the message of 1 Peter to our lives today. Now, last week, we began to try to draw attention to three facts about the audience, three facts about those to whom Peter wrote. Now, remember, we only kind of, we, we didn't make it very far last week. We just got the first fact. We saw where they were located. And you can see that very clearly in your copy of the scriptures. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, it's one reason for you to bring your Bible to uh, church so that you can just follow along. You can see in black and white exactly what we're saying here. We're not trying to draw truths out that aren't there. We're just simply looking at the text. And we won't get into all the details. They're on the screen for you. We won't get into all the details that we noted last week. But uh, just to so you remember a little bit, we found that Peter is writing to a group of spiritual pilgrims. Their, their citizenship is in heaven while they are residents on the earth. They're they're living in a time when persecution is rampant. Persecution is ramping up there in in the Roman Empire. They're feeling the brunt of suffering because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're just scattered about. They're they're dispersed, Peter says. They're, They're just scattered about. They don't really belong. And you remember, we said something about where they lived. I mean, These people were once following the foolish ways of their own lust, but but one day someone preached the gospel to them in the power of the Holy Spirit, and praise God, lives were changed. And that's a good summary of what we had last week. And we said last week that the gospel is a treasure. The gospel is a treasure. We have been entrusted with this announced 
written message of the gospel. And listen, when the gospel is not guarded, it is removed. Just as God sovereignly grants the gospel message to a place or to a people, God can remove it when it is not well stewarded. That's exactly what happened there in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. We see where they were located. But what I want to do today is finish up this and note the last two points. We, we saw where they were located, but today I want to see that they were loved, and I want to see how they lived. That they were loved, and how they lived. And I think when we do this, we'll see just how applicable the message of 1 Peter is to our lives. Let me read the text, and then we'll notice that they were loved. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now let's continue this and notice this morning that Peter is writing to a group of people who were loved. They are believers, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, scattered around to various areas. They're they're exiles. I I like to call them rejects. They are elect rejects. They are exiles, aliens. They're, They're pilgrims. And Peter just opens this letter and he points them to understand that though they are aliens... Though they are aliens in this world, though they are seemingly just scattered about, they are not scattered away from their creator. Now what's interesting to me is Peter's word choice. Because what he does is he actually brings up one of the most misunderstood and really most despised doctrines in all of church history. In the very first verse, just with this word, elect. Elect exiles. Probably the most despised doctrine in church history, the doctrine of unconditional election. He calls them elect exiles. Now what's interesting to me is that he doesn't bring this up as a matter for debate. He just says it matter-of-factly. Now I know that some of us are here this morning and we're in the category of sort of either misunderstanding this doctrine because we just there's things we don't understand about it, or maybe you're here and you say, well, I hate that. I hate that doctrine, and that would be normal, I would say, because that's the same thing. When Jesus preached this doctrine in Luke chapter 4, he preached it, and people got so angry that they tried to take him and throw him off the pinnacle, of a cl- off the cliff there in Nazareth. I mean, other people in John chapter 6 heard this doctrine and they decided, no way, I'm not following Jesus anymore. So that's the kind of emotion, can I say, that this doctrine, this word uh, 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 brings on or produces. But Peter doesn't do that for the sake of theological debate. He actually does this for the sake of bringing comfort to God's people. So let's think about the doctrine of election. A.W. Pink said this, the only reason anybody believes in election is because he finds it taught in God's word. No man or number of men ever originated this doctrine, like the doctrine of eternal punishment. 
It conflicts with the dictates of the carnal mind and is repugnant to the sentiments of the unregenerate heart. And like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the miraculous birth of our Savior, the truth of election must be received with simple, unquestioning faith. So think about elect. The word itself is a Greek word. It just means called out. It means select. It means chosen. All throughout the scriptures, we read of the electing or choosing work of God. So I might say this, election is God's work of choosing or electing a people to call his own. He has chosen people out of the world in order that they might belong to him. Those people would make up the church, the called out ones. This choosing is a gracious choosing. It is unconditional. Before the foundation of the world, God chose who would be rescued from their sin without respect to them meeting any conditions as the basis of his choice. We all know that justice would be served if all of us perished. Justice would be served if every one of us went to hell. Uh, 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 Salvation, however, election is God's gracious and free choice. In other words, it's owing to nothing in me, absolutely nothing. What I think is interesting about this, the the way Peter talks about these readers, is is he does it in such a way that, that wouldn't happen in the church today. It wouldn't happen in modern society. If it happened in modern society, people would be identified by their identifiers. You know? White Christians, black Christians, Asian, whatever, in, the, in this kind of CRT world, the way things. But Peter doesn't identify them ethnically at all. He doesn't identify them by language group, but rather he identifies them by their relationship to God. In, in chapter 1, verse 3, he calls God, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest identifier in the Christian life is, is, is your relationship to God the Father, which is only possible through Jesus Christ. God is not everyone's Father. He is only the Father of those who come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the primary way in which a Christian is identified And he is telling us something of the love with which they have been loved. So let's think about this love. The love that is is bestowed on Christians. Let's think of it, first of all, as what we'll say a selecting love. A selecting love. We hear this. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now I know some people think that the doctrine of election just began in the mind of John Calvin. But that's not true. It began in the mind of God the Father. How did that happen? Well, you notice here. They are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now keep in mind the context. Very important. He is saying that you may be rejected by the world, but you are elected by God. In other words, 
where, this is important, friends, where they are geographically and where they are spiritually is in accord with the foreknowledge of God. I want you to look with me very quickly at Acts chapter 17. And, and, and I'm not going to belabor this. We are going to get finished with this today. But I just want you to see this passage here in Acts chapter 17. And we'll begin reading in verse 24. Acts 17, 24. We're saying that we have to understand that where we are geographically and where we are spiritually is in accord with the foreknowledge of God the Father. Look at this. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation. There's only one race, Adam's race. There aren't many races, okay? He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Listen, you're not where you are geographically by mistake. You're not where you are spiritually by mistake. Peter is assigning their physical and their spiritual circumstances to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, that phrase you need to carefully consider, foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge refers to the decision of God the Father to set His love on an individual. The decision of God the Father to set His love on an individual. Now, I used to think that the phrase meant this. Foreknowledge is foresight. God looks down the corridors of time and sees what will happen. And then He makes that His will. God would know everything in eternity past. And He looked down the corridors of time. And He would see if someone would believe in Him when presented with the gospel. And then on the basis of their belief, their foreknown belief, then he would then choose them for his own. And that way, foreknowledge became foresight. But that can't be the case. Why? Well, the word foreknowledge doesn't mean foresight. It means foreordained. It's used this way in Peter's gospel, in Peter's letter, chapter 1, verse 20. It means That God determined to have a relationship, a saving relationship to individuals before the foundation of the world. Put simply, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be sure that before the world was created by God, in His infinite wisdom and in His love, He determined that He would have a relationship with you. He established your time He established your dwelling place in accord with that decision. What I mean to say, what you should be taking from this, friends, is that those things are not 
hindrances to God accomplishing His eternal will in your life. Praise the Lord. What do I mean? Listen, wherever you are geographically is not a hindrance to God accomplishing His eternal plan of redemption. This is what ought to make some of you leave this place and go into the hardest places of the world to announce the message there. Some of you should do that. Because geographical location is not a hindrance to God's will. Praise the Lord. It's on the basis of that determination. The the foreknown, the determination of God before the foundation of the world that he set out to bring you and I to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ apart from our works alone. So it can't mean foresight because it doesn't mean that. But you remember me taking you this before. Just think about why scripturally, why foreknown can't mean foresight, for you know, seeing something beforehand. Look with me, if you will, at John chapter 10 for a moment. And I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. I'm going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. I'm going I'm to ask you a series of questions that may help you, especially if you're one of those like I was, when just, just misunderstanding, confused, whatever it might be. Look at John 10, 24. <clears throat> So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here's my question. Are we his sheep because we believe Or do we believe because we are his sheep? It's the question you need to answer from that text. Look at John 17. John 17, verse 6. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Here's a question. Do we belong to God because we come to Jesus or do we come to Jesus because we belong to God? One more. Acts chapter 13. Just presenting these questions for you to answer, to think about in light of what we're talking about here in 1 Peter. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles, this is Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. 
Is election based on foreknown faith or does faith happen because of election? Do you believe and thus enter into your appointment to eternal life or had you been appointed to eternal life and that is what enabled you to believe? So the scripture is telling us here, election takes place before the foundation of the world and isn't based on any precondition or prerequisite foreseen in the sinner. He's talking about how God loved them and he's telling these people that though they're rejected of the world, Peter is telling us in 1 Peter, though you might be rejected of the world, though you might be scattered about, listen, God's, the, the reach of God's love is not hindered in any way. The reach of God's love is not hindered in any way. He has reached down no matter where you are geographically and no matter where you are spiritually, and He set His love on you. He determined to to love you. He selected you. But not only do we see this love as being a selecting love, Back in 1 Peter 1, we see it as being a sanctifying love. See what he says? 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. God's work of loving a people, of, of setting His love on a people from before the foundation of the world is actually brought, that, that's an eternity past, It is actually brought into the present by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus was talking about to to one named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When when Jesus told Nicodemus, listen, you've got to be born again. You have to be born from above, born by the Spirit, if you're ever going to see the kingdom of heaven. Peter calls this... The sanctification of the Spirit. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification means means separation. it's, It's just to be set apart. This is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit of setting believers apart from sin and to God. The Spirit does that by unleashing the heart from sin's bondage and applying the Word of God to the heart of the sinner. Charles Wesley got this point down clearly when he wrote in his hymn. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. To which we respond, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? See, what this is telling us, think about this, how Peter is just right from the get-go encouraging these believers. The Lord, the, the sight and reach of the Holy Spirit is not limited by one's geographical location. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that the sight and reach of God the Holy Spirit is not hindered by one's current spiritual state. In fact, the Spirit of God reaches, as one man said, from the uttermost to the what? Guttermost. 
You can be the highest and, uh, you know, the falutin. You can be down in the gutter. And God, the Holy Spirit, sees and reaches even there. High and low and everything in between, which is exactly why you and I are here today. Because he, His sight, His reach is from the uttermost to the guttermost. There, there came a time, there comes a time in the heart of the elect when they finally hear the word of God. They hear it. And they hear it like they never heard it before. And the Bible says that the Spirit produces faith. The Spirit produces repentance. The Spirit produces regeneration. The Spirit produces adoption. I found this quote from MacArthur helpful. He said, Being elect and being saved are two different things. You can be elect and not be saved yet. Christians are chosen from the beginning but are saved in time when the Spirit sets a believer apart from sin, darkness, and unbelief and turns them towards God, light, and faith. You see, this is God's work to bring through the Spirit, setting them apart. He's telling them that you are loved with a with a selecting love, with a sanctifying love. But praise the Lord, it doesn't stop there. It's also a saving love. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, sometimes we get this idea that this kind of teaching does not it sort of cancels out human responsibility or even the, the need for the cross. But that's not the case. And Peter says it very, very clearly. In the mind of the Father, God plans the salvation of man in accordance with His foreknowledge. Purchases, purchases salvation by the work of the Son on the cross and applies salvation by the application of the Word to the heart of, of an individual by the Spirit. Believers are said to be set apart for what? They're said to be set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now listen, that is the same way of speaking of being saved. The Spirit sets us apart to be saved. How? By obeying Jesus Christ. It's the same way that we would say, by trusting Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul calls it the obedience of faith. Now, I want to point something out to you. The church, the way that the church typically, the church in America typically refers to this is not correct. Maybe you've heard someone say this. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. Or maybe you've heard that you need to invite Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. And friends, that's just not the language of the Bible. We're called in the Scriptures to obey Jesus. That's what faith is. Faith is obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not inviting Him to do anything. As if Jesus, uh, uh, someone said, as if Jesus were standing there with his hat in his hand, waiting on you to do something. You're not inviting him to do anything. You're submitting to him. That is for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, set apart by the Spirit unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and for sprinkling with his blood. And we're not going to go all into this, but let me just say this. It reminds us of the events of Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, Moses confirmed the covenant with God's people. They heard the words of the covenant and they pledged themselves. They said, we'll submit to the authority of God. And at that point, Moses then took some of the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the people as a symbol of the covenant between God and man. You are set apart by the Spirit unto obedience of Jesus Christ for sprinkling with His blood. The point is, we're separated by one master from, uh, from one master, namely sin, so that we can have another master, namely Jesus. When you obey Jesus, when you trust Jesus Christ, you are submitting to Him as your Lord, and it is, as it were, that the blood of Jesus Christ was applied to your account. This is the, the new covenant. It's not the old covenant like was emphasized in, in Exodus 24, but it is the new covenant, not my blood, but the blood of the sacrificial lamb applied to my account. His righteousness for your sin. This is really stunning, friends. Because Peter is telling these exiles about the commitment that God has to them. And if you can hear it today, he's telling you about the commitment that God has to you. They, he says, and I can say to you, are specially loved. All of us, brothers and sisters, specially loved by all of God. This is, this is not just the commitment of, of a little part of God. This is all of God. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. He is all in when it comes to His love for you. There's not, praise the Lord for this, there is not a little bit of reticence in God's mind. There's not some voice in the back of His head saying, I don't know about this, but I'll try. This, this is God all in in His love. Father, Spirit, Son. When you look at your life, you understand God saved you because He sought you and He sought you because He selected you. You can only rejoice in this. You can only rejoice, as Peter says, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The Father thought it. The Spirit sought it. And the son bought it. That is an amazing kind of love. He's telling these people, rejected by the world, on the outer reaches of the Roman Empire, out there all by themselves, and he is saying, listen, you are loved. A selecting love, a sanctifying love, and a saving love. But not only does he tell them that they are loved, we, we notice something about how they lived. He, he says, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We've seen something about them geographically. We've seen something about them theologically. Now I want you to see something about them practically. Practically. Listen, think about how they lived. What was their life's purpose what was their life's purpose? Now, I've already hinted at this. But just think about this, the implications. 
of the Father setting His love on them and the Spirit setting them apart so that they could obey Jesus. Have you considered, and if you haven't, you need to consider, how beginning to use this biblical language really gets rid of the whole lordship salvation debate? Think about it. The Father sets His love on you. The Spirit sets you apart. He applied the Word of God to your heart so that you might come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you might come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in obedience to Him. That initial step of faith is a step of submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Your life's purpose is set to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard someone say, That there was a time in their life when Jesus became their Savior, but not their Lord? Question, does a statement like that seem to be supported by what you just read here in 1 Peter 1-2? Absolutely not. Their life's purpose was a purpose determined by their obedience to Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of life. Are you willing to trust Jesus with your life? Are you willing to submit to Him, your will to Him? Can you call Him your Lord? I'm not saying that doesn't mean that there's not times of of maturing and growing, but following Christ means that the trajectory of your life is set towards obeying Him. What would be the point of saying you've obeyed Him if you're not wanting to obey Him now? Because that's what you're saying. If you say you're a Christian, you're saying you've come to obey Jesus Christ. But there are many Christians who say, or many who say they're Christians, who say, yeah, he's my Savior, but I don't want to obey him now. And that is absolutely antithetical to the gospel. Over the years, I've confronted some of these people, and and they're cut to the heart, the They repent, which is a mark of a child of God, but sometimes there's rebellion. There's refusal to obey the Lordship of Christ. He's telling us how they lived. Look, we know that there were, were, we'll, we'll call them struggles. We'll call them the process of growth, whatever you want to call it. We know that we can see that in the book of 1 Peter and in the book of 2 Peter. But there's this trajectory of life. In obedience to Jesus Christ, what good does it do for you to say that that He's your Savior if He's not your Lord? You see their life's purpose. You say, well, Joe, but how do I get there? What is their life's purpose? What is their life's power? Look at the benediction that Peter speaks to them. This is a Christian greeting, a Christian salutation. But it's more than just space filler. These are more than just words. Peter wishes, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now notice the word multiplied. That's to say increasing, growing in your present experience. The life-giving, life-sustaining grace and peace is yours in overflowing supply. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, he gives us the idea of the source. He said that this comes in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
In other words, this becomes more of an experiential reality the more that you grow in your knowledge of God the Father and of Jesus Christ. Listen, I've learned over the years that the power of the Christian life is bound up in an increasing knowledge of Almighty God. In an increasing understanding of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Paul told Timothy, you be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace, what is grace? Grace is the full and free favor of God. It is the undeserved merit of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will empower your living, your life's testimony, your life, the life that you live for Him. Grace not only saves us, somebody said, but grace sanctifies us. Grace is the daily allotment of strength to serve the Lord. That is the power for living. It is the supply of strength for you to turn from sin unto righteousness. That's how they live. Their life's purpose was obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, a trajectory of of obeying Him. And their life's power was the life-giving, life-sustaining grace of God. But not only grace, he says peace. Peace is just a wonderful word. And, he's, and, and this is what, this is, this is the peace of God. It is the peace with God. Let me explain to you what this peace is by giving you a quote from Adrian Rogers. Here's what he said. Bible peace is not the subtraction of problems from life. It's it's the addition of power to meet those problems. You don't keep this peace. This peace keeps you. It's peace that passes understanding. And you can't get that from a bottle. You can't get it from a syringe. You can't get it from a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a well-meaning friend, or a book. You can't even get it from a principal. You get it from God. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. That's your legacy. It is peace that the world cannot give. It's peace the world cannot take away. Find your peace in him. The Bible says you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What is the power for their life? It is peace. The peace of God, peace with God. And it is the peace of God. Of God to know that no matter what this world throws at you, listen, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Right? No matter what chaos in your mind, no matter what chaos in your life, it comes down to this that which is supplied to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter who you are. God intervenes in human history, bringing this message to bear on your life, and your heart is changed. J.W. Alexander said, those who have had the most abiding assurance of God's love are those who have been most in meditation on the written assurance of that love. We have seen that written assurance here in 1 Peter chapter 1 today. Let me, let me just ask you three questions, and I'll try to Maybe, maybe 
share with you a little bit of my thoughts on this, but I want you to take these three questions and, and maybe answer them today for point of application. How does this truth influence your thinking about where you live? Let's think practically about where we live. It's interesting to me that the reach of God is not limited by a geographical location. You, you think that you have to be in a place where, you can, where everything can be all right, where everything can just be perfect in your own little mind. Maybe you think, I, I could never go and live in Pakistan. I could never go and live in Indonesia. I could never go. Why? Because, oh, it's so hard there. It's so. What does this, how does this influence your thinking about where you're living? Is God's grace somehow limited by your geographic location? Is God's grace somehow limited by the things that are going on in our world today? In particular, right here, the political malaise, the political mess that we find ourselves in? Second, how does this inform your perspective on how you've been loved? Think about how you have been loved, how God has set his love on you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, why? This text will force you to take it all the way back to eternity past. And you would say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ today because in eternity past, God set his love on me. Not because of anything I did, but because he chose to do that. How does that, how do you walk around with the knowledge of that. How does that influence how you, how you deal with sin? You, you get this temptation that comes into your mind, some, some temptation that comes into your heart, and you, here you are, you're thinking about the love that is yours in Christ, God the Father setting His love on you from before the foundation of the world. How does that destroy that temptation? And third, how does it inspire your efforts in how you live? What? What difference does this make? You walk out of here today knowing that you've been loved with an everlasting love. You walk out of here today knowing how it is, what, what the strength for your life is. How does that inspire you? How are you going to live today as a result of what you see in this text? Next week we come to this section, chapter 1, verse 3. We'll probably only take three through five next week, but we'll find out Peter is just exalting in God. He's, he is a, this is a call to praise God. What reason do you have to praise God? You know, we probably, he, he could have probably ended his letter right here. And we'd have a lot shorter series through these things if he would have just done that, right? He could have ended his letter because he said all that he needs to say, but there's more. And all that has come is just like bonus from here on out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ today. For the privilege that is ours to know you and, and love you. And as we come to you today, we uh, just think of the simple truth of the gospel. For which we're grateful. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would draw us close to yourself. That you would... Just really set this truth on our hearts that we're different as a result of what we've heard today. 
to empower us to live for you until the day Jesus Christ comes again. We pray this in Christ's name and together all God's people said, amen. Would you stand together?